so grateful we um, come into your house with hearts of thanksgiving for your word, for uh, this facility that we get to use, for uh, a place to meet, a reason to meet. We thank you, Lord, that you chose to um, meet with us and that you sent your son to become incarnate, to live a perfect life, to die a death that our sins imposed on him and to be raised and ascended and be seated at your right hand, Lord. To you belongs all the glory. We pray that you'd bless the time that we get together today to um, examine the overarching theme of the book of Romans. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, this is going to be fun. We've been going through our themes of the New Testament books now, and we went through the four gospel accounts, and then last week we looked at the overarching theme of the book of Acts, but now we are transitioning into Romans, which is the first epistle of the New Testament, and it, you know, as it's lined out there in, in your Bible. And so epistle is the is the, the churchy word for a letter. And so we find that this is a letter that has been written and it's got all the parts of a letter. It's got the um, introduction, it's got a body, and then it's got a conclusion. This letter, they, for at least from what I read, the letters of, the, of that time of the biblical era were not this long. So this is not reflective of most letters of that time. This is a much longer letter that was written. In fact, uh, they like to refer to it, the, I don't know, the literary analysts like to refer to it as a letter essay because he talks about the, uh, these different um, enormous topics throughout, and it's, and it's just very long uh, as, as far as letters go. But ultimately, what this is, um, is an exposition of the gospel message. This is the gospel examined closely and um, exposited, in a sense, in this long letter. And it was Chrysostom, who was uh, one of the foremost theologians of the fourth century, had it read to him weekly. Um, Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley all attribute the reading of the book of Romans to their personal salvation, their, to their conversion, being the, a significant contributing factor. And then Martin Luther was quoted as saying, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin also said, quote, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture, close quote. So, very, you know, I mean, all of God's Word is important. The book of Romans is uh, it's valuable to us because um, it, it has this gospel quality where you can really dig in and see all of these aspects. It is virtually undisputed that Paul is the author, and in fact, he... It says as much right at the beginning. So, Carol, that's you. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
Paul. Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, there we go. So we have our opening, the introduction. Paul cites himself as the author. And then when we get to the date, it is estimated to have been written about A.D. 55, which would have been during um, Paul's third missionary journey, and it would have been during that time that he's in Corinth. So what I'm hoping happens, that if you were here last week and we went through the book of Acts and we, and we saw each of those three missionary journeys, so there is a narrative picture that was given to us in the book of Acts that showed us what God is doing overall in the church and, um, and then how, it's go- how it un- unfolds in the missionary journeys of Paul. And now we have this letter to the Romans that is taking place from inside of one of those missionary journeys, inside of the third missionary journey. And, we, and so we can connect what he writes here to that piece of Acts. And Bill is going to read for us Acts 20, verses 1 and 2. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye, and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. Okay, so when he arrives in Greece, specifically um, in Corinth, which I'm not sure that's considered actually part of Greece, but it's right, it's right there next to Greece. It's all uh, close to each other. Um, so he's in Corinth for uh, an extended period of time, and it's believed that while he's there in Corinth that he authors this uh, uh, letter to the Romans. Uh, the ch- the, as far as the audience, it is, in fact, the church that's in Rome, and they, unlike all of these other churches, you know, Paul was going around during the missionary journeys and planting churches everywhere that he went, but Rome never had any apostolic exposure. Peter and John, Paul, none of them had been to Rome. And so here we have Paul going around. So just picture his missionary journeys as he's proceeding from, uh, usually from Antioch. Remember, he starts from Antioch, kind of does his circle, comes back to Antioch, and he does that multiple times. Then he comes back to Jerusalem. And, but in this loop, he doesn't make it to Rome. But while he's in Corinth, he writes to the church that is in Rome, And um, we also know from Acts 2, verses 10 to 11, so during the the account that includes Pentecost, that we have believers in Jerusalem, we have believers from Rome that are at Pentecost, so there's a connection there. Um, But we know for sure that Paul did not actually establish a church in Rome because of what we read in Romans 1, verses 8 to 13. Thomas. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may, not, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that 
I have often intended that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far um, have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Okay, so at least twice, maybe three times in there, he talks about the fact that he has not been able to go to them yet, and that he's writing this letter to them um, to help, you know, promote the gospel and expand the kingdom in writing since he's been unable to actually visit them at this time. Now, this is what I want to kind I want you to visualize because, again, the goal of what we're doing here is not to just fill your head full of facts and figures um, that you may or may not remember, but the goal of this whole Sunday School series is to give you a better grasp of these big ideas of the books, each of these, uh, each of these books of the Bible, so that even when you go to them and you begin to read them, you already have a few things in your mind, some context already created, so that when you read the first verse in there, you have some sense of that. So what I want you to do is hopefully you have the handout and it has two maps. So this is a handout that I created actually um, back when I was preaching through Acts chapter 2, where it is recorded about, the, um, about Pentecost. And so what Paul, Paul's, well, let me, let, me, let me just focus on the map here for just a second. So in Pentecost, what we saw was that it was essentially, and you've heard me say it in more than one sermon, that in Pentecost we see uh, a reversal of what happened in, at the Tower of Babel. So um, at the Tower of Babel, they are wanting to make a name for themselves. They build what's called a ziggurat. They build a structure to go up, essentially to meet, um, to meet you know, gods, to meet idols that they're worshiping and to make a name for themselves. And God looks down, sees it, says, no, this is not how this is gonna go. He divides them up and he divides them by their language and um, they end up getting sent out from there. And then what we see in Pentecost is the exact opposite of that, where there is a miraculous uh, unification of the language that even though Peter is preaching, they all hear it in their own language and you have the tongues of fire and all of these things happening that are a reversal. Um, and so I want to point out in this map, which by the way, let me hit pause here for just a second and say, and put a plug in here for our uh, prayer service, because this is a map that I believe I handed out. We, you know, we call it our pastoral postscript. So after the fellowship meal, we stick around and before we pray, we spend a few minutes talking about extra things uh, that didn't make it into the sermon. So this is one of the things that we discussed at that time for those that were here and got these really cool handouts. So that's my plug. There's really good stuff. There's extras that we get to talk about openly. Uh, and this is one of the things we, we talked about. So what you see, if you look at the black and white side, where it says Genesis 10, table of nations, what you have is the nations that were created as a result of God dividing their languages and sending them out. And it, it uh, originates in the Tower of Babel originates in the plains of Shinar, which is basically modern-day Iraq. So where you see Iraq there, the Tower of Babel would be somewhere in that general area. And then over the course of approximately 3,000 years, so in other words, the time between the Tower of Babel and 
this time of uh, the church, the, the time of Christ, you have over the course of those 3,000 years then that division taking place and people being divided and being sent out and these different peoples, these different nations all being created. And that's what you see listed in here. So, in fact, uh, then what happens in the, this idea of Pentecost, so what God had divided at the Tower of Babel, he then brings back together. So if you flip the map, he ends up bringing back together at Pentecost. So the names, the names are different than this side because over the course of 3,000 years, names change. Areas, regions, geographic areas, the names of those areas change. However, what you do find is that all of these same actual geographic places come back together in this reunification at Jerusalem. Now, of course, what's amazing here is, if you can picture, picture this, is you have God that does the dividing because of their sin, and then because of the work of Christ, he does this reuniting and this reconciliation that takes place that brings people from all these different nations into Jerusalem where the giving of the Holy Spirit takes place and everybody hearing um, um, Peter's preaching in their own language and being filled with the Spirit. And then we have heard uh, recently that as we are making our way through the book of Acts, how Paul ravaged the church. And so what did that do? Now that these people have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it actually sends them back out into the ends of the world. So we have God dividing because of sin, reuniting because of what Christ accomplished, but then taking that new church, that change that's taking place and expanding it back out throughout the world. Now, Paul knows his Old Testament. So what, what I wanted to point out, actually, I even printed out a couple of the notes that I had back from when I preached through Acts chapter 2. And so I wanted to point this out to you when this, uh, this is from Isaiah. So this is what Isaiah is predicting. So Isaiah fits then post Tower of Babel, but pre what Christ accomplishes. And in Isaiah 11:11, he said, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And so basically what he's doing is he's predicting what we end up seeing later here. And then also in Isaiah 66, verses 18 and 19, Isaiah again prophesies, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Look how this, this unique connection of gathering the nation and the tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations. So hopefully you're picturing this thing that I, I'm trying to describe. God had already divided. Isaiah had said, this is what's going to happen. We're, uh, God is going to recover the remnant that remains. And then in Isaiah 66, he talks about, and from them, I will send survivors to the nations. So back out again, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Jovan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So that's what we see 
when we look at this map then, I'm going back to the black and white map, the table of nations, and what Isaiah predicted when he said, I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud. What you have is, it, on this map it says Put, because that's just another uh, name for, for Pull. It also has Javan over here, and it has Lud. But what you don't see in the map, that is off the, off the map, farther to the west, is Tarshish. And Tarshish is a city in Spain. Okay, now, if you look then at the... Um, and I, I didn't print it out for you or anything, but you can understand this conceptually. If you look at what Paul did in his missionary journeys, they were not random. He didn't just sail around, you know, and boondock somewhere and kind of start slinging the word of God. He is going, led, I'm sure, by the Holy Spirit to very specific locations, to spe specific geographies. So Paul... After Christ has come, he has gathered the nations. We have Paul, when he was still Saul, ravaging the church and sending Christians, scattering them, so that it shows that both the Samaritans and the Gentiles are included. And then when Saul becomes Paul, and God converts him after the road to Emmaus, now Paul himself is going about the job of these circular missionary journeys personally planting God's church. And because of the education that he had, obviously this is part of God's plan, and why he wanted to use the Apostle Paul was because of his knowledge and his education with uh, historic Judaism, with, with the Hebrew canon, he is sending him to all of these regions that God had before divided the people out to and had gathered, and he's sending Paul around. Except when you look at all the different places that Paul goes around to, it hits this list that he ends up going to um, all of these regions except for one, and that is Spain. And so what you have is Paul writes that his plan is to go to Spain. This is not random. Paul had every intent of going to Spain because he knows what's in the Old Testament. He knows what he's doing. He knows what God has called him to do. He knows why he's going to where he's going, proclaiming the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles. And he knows, I've got boxes to check. I've got places I've got to go. God has put me on this specific mission. And there's only one left that I haven't hit. And it's Spain. It's, it's the city of Tarshish that we see in, uh, that was predicted in the book of Isaiah, which is in Spain. And so when we read then, we've looked at it a number of times, but in uh, Acts 1, verse 8, when Jesus, just prior to his ascension, tells the apostles that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, you will receive the Holy Spirit, you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that, that part about and to the end of the earth is, uh, is what Paul is all about in what is recorded in a narrative fashion in the book of Acts. And, but of course, Paul doesn't know everything that's going on, and he believes that he's going to go to Spain. That's his plan, is to go to Spain to complete this. So for those old enough to remember, you know, Paul is 
space, final frontier, you know, these are the voyages, Starship, Apostle Paul. But it, you could actually say Spain for him. Spain is the final frontier. He is, he is like, he's got to put a cap on all of this missionary journey stuff that he's doing, and his goal is to get to Spain. It was not to stop in Rome. Rome was just a, a waypoint. Rome was just one stop on his plan to get to Spain. So let's read Judera, uh, Romans 15, verses 20 to 24, and then skip down to verse 28. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey where you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Did that include verse 28? Okay, thank you. Okay, so we see that clear, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and yet even in writing to them, he's telling them, hey, my plan is just to, you're a, to stop off and see you all on my way to Spain. But Paul never makes it to Spain, right? He ends up, you know, at the end, the, the, and we read this again, the narrative account, the chronological layout of what happened with his life is he ends up telling Agrippa, you know, I appeal to Caesar, and so he ends up, instead of hitting Spain on a missionary, or I mean hitting Rome on a missionary journey while he's traveling to Spain, he instead ends up under arrest in Jerusalem and is taken in chains instead to Rome, where he is going to end up dying in Rome. But of course, we're back to what I mentioned at the end of last week's lesson where you know, Agrippa says, well, if only he hadn't said this, but then we looked at, yeah, but look what wouldn't it, would not have happened um, about the, uh, the word of God going out to the ends of the earth. And so we have plans, and they seem very clear, and in some respects, God is like, so it would seem that God shows us things, and we go, wow, it makes perfect sense the trajectory I'm on, but what's going to happen out there in the distance a little bit a lot of times it's not quite what we think is going to happen, and yet it's still used um, to God's glory. So he does not make it, uh, but Paul does go to Rome in chains and in death. So all of that is what I'm hopeful you will kind of bear in mind is taking place even before you start reading Romans. So let's look at the outline. We'll look at the, uh, the outline. So the, it's broken into five pieces here. And the overarching, the very first one, Roman numeral one that I've put up here, is the introduction and thesis. And I should make sure uh, I give attribution for this specifically. Uh, this outline is from Guy Prentice Waters out of A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament, Gospel Realized. So he, um, but I pulled additional information from other sources as well, but the outline itself is from him. 
And the main theme, so what we have in the book of Romans is, as I already mentioned, we have an examination of the gospel message itself. And in the book of Romans, Paul talks about all, basically every major theme that has to do with the gospel. So um, he writes about sin, he writes about the law, he writes about judgment, faith, works, grace, justification, election, plan of salvation, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the list goes on. Paul hits all of those topics. But even though he hits all of those topics, where, which are in some way connected, of course, to the gospel message, what we see when we, when we look at this overarching theme of the book of Romans is we see the righteousness of God, which is, that's my abbreviation, by the way, the righteousness of God. So the entirety is an, uh, of this, the beginning, the opening verses, verses uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, is the righteousness of God. And what we see specifically then in, in verses 16 and 17, Diana, is the universal lack of righteousness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for faith, I'm sorry. And as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so you have right there in a snapshot what is happening with the gospel. What are, what are, our, are always the two major facets of the gospel? What are the two things? You're, you're delivering the gospel to somebody. Yeah, you're telling somebody the gospel. What do you want to make sure you include? Sin and salvation. Yes. Go ahead, Sean. What were you going to say? There we go. Repentance and faith. Sin and salvation, repentance and faith. So what we have is right away in the introduction here is this overarching message of the fact that uh, a lack of righteousness for God and that there is a righteousness that is... Uh, that can save. So that's just that overarching thesis, and then it breaks it down in, I didn't write the verses up here, but the lack of and the need for the righteousness of God is in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And what we see in one, I'm going to have Jamie read uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, is as it relates to this lack of righteousness, is Paul's indictment of all of humanity. So go ahead with 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what God has shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Thank you, Jamie. And then it continues along the same line all the way through the end of the chapter. In fact, that last verse there in chapter one says, though they know God's righteousness, or excuse me, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I mean, this is a scathing indictment of humanity, right? They, what, their tendency is to suppress the truth, which then results in incurring God's wrath. They want to suppress the truth, and it causes God, uh, that brings God's wrath. And then we get a concluding verdict of this lack of righteousness and this need for righteousness in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Go ahead, Wayne. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They're, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But Amen. now, oh yeah. Amen. And so this section then of Romans, um, in, this, in, this, in this getting into the weeds of the gospel message, is it starts right where we should start when we tell other people the gospel, which is they're guilty according to God's law, not because we're judging them, but because God's law judges them. And without Christ, they are living by a standard that judges them, and they are absolutely without excuse. And then we, what uh, the verses there, 3 verses 9 to 20 that Wayne just read, are, are the verdict of their status without Christ. Always the place to start. And then it transitioned in uh, to this to the gift of the righteousness of God that's in chapter 3 verse 21 all the way that continues all the way to uh, chapter 8 verse 39 and within those chapters 3 to 8 it, we see how to obtain God's righteousness and I'll go ahead and, and I'm not sure who's got chapter 3 verses 21 is that Gary yeah I think so Gary but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Okay, so right there what we see is that Paul is outlining that there is hope for people that start, which is all of us, in this category of lacking righteousness 
and having a need for the righteousness of God and there being condemnation and being the object of God's wrath due to that lack of righteousness. He then transitioned here to say there is a righteousness that exists and it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the gospel message. Paul is going through and getting granular with the aspects of the gospel message. So he writes about how to obtain God's righteousness, which is what Gary just read. He goes on in chapter 4 to give the example of Abraham. He, and then in chapter 5, he guarantees the blessing for the righteous and, uh, and that it's rooted in obedience of Christ. In chapters 6 through 8, grace reigns through righteousness. So specifically, chapter 6, sin's dominion is broken. Chapter 7, believers are not condemned. We're not sinless, but we're not condemned. And then in chapter 8, is living by the, uh, if we live by the Spirit, we are victors. So all of that, so that's chapters uh, 3 through 8, or partway through 3, 321 through 8, talks about the gift and, all, and the example in the Old Testament with Abraham and then all the subsequent uh, ways that that bears itself out. And then that takes us to the challenge right there, the challenge, or a challenge, I think, is the way that it was put in there, a challenge to the righteousness of God. And that's chapters 9 through uh, 1136. And so we see Paul kind of transition and describe an an the anguish of Israel's unbelief. And so chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, looks like Cindy... I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay, so this great sorrow and, and unceasing anguish in his heart that he's writing about is Israel's unbelief. So now you have in chapter 9, God's righteousness that's established in history. Chapter 10, that it's received by faith. Chapter 11, that it's meant for both Jew and Gentile. And then at the end of this challenge, so the need, the gift, and then eight, eight, this challenge that comes, that, you know, so Paul is very conflicted because he sees people, he's telling them these things, they're not accepting it, it's causing him anguish because they don't see it, they're not believing, but yet at the end of this description of this challenge to the righteousness of God, it ends with a benediction of praise, Glenda, in chapter 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And, and isn't this a lesson for us too that even if we manage to successfully describe a person's need for repentance and the free offer of the gift of salvation. And then when we recognize that our own family members, our own friends, our own coworkers, that you're being explicitly telling them these truths up here, just they're blind, they're deaf, they're hard-hearted, they're, you know, they don't, they're uninterested, you know, any of those things that 
I think the example we can take from the Apostle Paul is we still need to loop, even though that causes us anguish, I think that's probably a godly response, is to be filled with anguish just as Paul was, yet it ends with a benediction of praise to the Lord because he is still working out his good and perfect plan in his people. And you doing that very thing is part of that plan and working that out. And you don't know, of course, what God is going to do with it, but being faithful in, in uh, being a participant in sharing the gospel message, people's need for repentance, their need for faith, and even if it's challenged. Um, and so he talks in detail about that. And then lastly, in chapters 12 through 16, it's the moral demands of the righteousness of God. So having recognized your need, I mean, this is gospel stuff, having recognized your need, having, uh, uh, become, having been saved by, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, um, how is it that we should live? And that's what we get in chapters uh, 12 to 16 in the book of, book of Romans, moral demands of the righteousness of God. Here's a quote from Guy Prentice Waters. Quote, in Romans 12 to 16, Paul outlines the contours of the moral demands that rest upon those who have received righteousness of God by faith alone. So, uh, close quote. So this is, th those chapters are about the righteous demands. So these chapters don't describe how a believer is justified. They describe how a justified believer should live. And so when we read these details about this is what it looks like to be a Christian, what that does not mean is this is what it looks like to become a Christian. It's having been saved, this is what your life should look like. And one of those is the fact that you, you operate as a living sacrifice. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so the will of God, so what he's doing is he's using language that people would be familiar with because of the ceremonial law. You know, they put, Jesus put an end to close the book on the, uh, the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but he's maintaining the language by teaching the people in this letter by saying, you yourselves need to be the living sacrifice, determining what is the good and perfect will of God. And then we have the application of the Decalogue or of the Ten Commandments, that it is to be continued to be applied, but with love. So that's in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so look at this. Several times in what Jasmine just read, the word law is connected with love. There's not an abrogation of the law. There is not a doing away with the law. There is instead a fulfilling of the law when we love as God has called us to love, which of course is to love our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That is a fulfilling of the law. 
And then we also are finally then to live now as those who belong to Christ. So Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk uh, properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay. Praise God. So that, so we see this fulfilling then of the work of the gospel message and uh, the Christian's life, fulfilling the moral demands of the righteousness of God in that way. I've left two minutes for commentary or questions. I've always wondered why uh, individuals would come from the ends of the earth to Jerusalem at Pentecost. And while I agree that um, they served as a vehicle to disperse the uh, message, I wondered if they might be remnants of the Assyrian diaspora. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Clearly, they're remnants in the sense that God had called them to be his people from within a, um, a sinful culture from various nations because they come from all, all different nations to be there. Right, right. But they might but, reflect uh, the king of Assyria's uh, attempt to uh, eliminate them by dispersing them. Yes, he did disperse them, but he all, and he also took, he tried to intermix them by taking, you know, other nations and their gods and intermingling well, he brought those back to Correct, replace back them. To. Correct. But the yeah. ones that had dispersed, yes. there might have been remnants among sure. them. And those are the ones who still celebrated Pentecost and would have been the ones that came back, Amen. perhaps. I mean, uh, I mean, Daniel, <laughs> what PJ's going through, is a perfect example of, you know, somebody who was pulled out of his nation and yet obviously was part of God's elect and used for that purpose. But, so, yeah. I'm with you, Jamie. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Um, I don't think scratching the surface even really is uh, an appropriate description of what we did with, uh, with the letter to the church in Rome this morning, but it still helps us to, to whet our appetite to see what, what um, you were doing through Paul in writing this letter in the middle of what he was doing in planting churches. And even though he saw himself going on to Spain to be the one that finishes that, uh, that deed of gathering in the nations in a sense, um, there's a beauty. We can appreciate the beauty of the fact that it was left open-ended to carry on to the ends of all the earth and not just to Tarshish of Spain. So thank you. Thank you for this letter that was written to the church. Lord, may we who have been called by you meet the more, through the power of the Holy Spirit, meet the moral demands of the righteousness of God. So may you be glorified in us and bless, we pray, the worship service that follows in Christ's name. Amen.